the parallels between what happened during this Weimar period are a chilling example of how easily a democracy can fail and how fragile a democracy uh, really is. Welcome to the Vermont Conversation. I'm David Goodman. How did German democracy collapse and give rise to Nazism? Jack Mayer, a recently retired Middlebury pediatrician, has a personal interest in answering that question. His parents were lucky. They fled Nazi Germany in 1939, just as their neighbors were being rounded up and sent to concentration camps where most of them died. Mayer has written two books about Nazi Germany. His first book, Life in a Jar, is a nonfiction story about forgotten Holocaust rescuer Irena Sendler and three Kansas teenagers who learn about her and tell her story to the world. His latest book, Before the Court of Heaven, is a historical fiction that explores the rise and fall of the Weimar Republic, the democratic government that was in power from 1919, just after Germany's defeat in World War I, and ended in 1933 with the election of Adolf Hitler as chancellor. Mayer argues that the collapse of democracy and the rise of authoritarianism in Germany is a cautionary tale for the U.S. today. I began by asking Mayer to explain what the Weimar Republic was and why he decided to write about it. Well, the Weimar Republic was the was Germany's first attempt at a constitutional democracy that began in 1919 at the end of World War One, and it lasted for 14 years until 1933 when Hitler became chancellor. Um, it's a fascinating and complex bit of um, of history in uh, both in terms of German history and the 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 sort of political social scene in Europe during the, in the interwar period. Um, And it it was something that I realized when I started doing research for this book that I really didn't know much about. And in my history courses in college, um, uh, it was mentioned and then moved on. And, um, and so I I really didn't have a lot of uh, background with Weimar. What drew me to this was um, in, uh, in 1992, uh, I was at a Yom Kippur service at Middlebury College, and uh, the, the rabbi's sermon for the, for, for the service um, was about this, the, uh, the turning from evil of this fascist assassin, Ernst Werner Teshoff. Um, and I mean, I was sort of struck by the fact that it, it, Yom Kippur is the holiest day of the Jewish year. Uh, it's a day where you, uh, you, you ask for repentance and forgiveness from, uh, for sins you have committed against, um, against God. Sins that you commit against other individuals have to be atoned for and repented person to person. So you actually have to, you're instructed to seek um, forgiveness from the person you have wronged. Um, This young man, this young fascist assassin that that the rabbi talked about, um, 
was um, a young 20-year-old, 21-year-old, when he did this, he was drawn into the the right-wing conspiratorial groups that formed after World War I. Um, And he, and one of the things that, that fascinated me and uh, with this sermon that the rabbi was giving was that, so how do you, um, how do you get forgiveness from someone you have murdered? And it's, um, the, this is the, the story of this young man's redemption. Now, the first half of this story is all true. This um, and the the source material for this is from um, microfilms that I obtained from the National Archive um, of his um, arrest, his interrogation, and the, and his trial. Um, so I had these these archival. I, I had his actual words. I had his actual dialogue. It, it was all in German. Um, and I, I have a, a good friend, Marita Schein, who is a German woman, and the two of us sat every week at the Ilsley Library here in Middlebury, um, translating word for word these, um, these transcripts. Um, and it was a treasure trove of not only this character, because he's my protagonist, but also an insight into the first Early manifestations and uh, of, uh, of of Nazism that were developing in the very early years after World War One. Now, um, explain who Teshoff assassinated and why it was significant. So Teshoff was one of three assassins who participated in the murder of uh, Walter Rathenau. He was the foreign Germany's foreign minister. Um, in the Weimar Republic. Um, He was the highest ranking Jew in all of the Weimar uh, Republic. He was a a beloved statesman. He was a a writer. He he helped Germany immensely during World War I in their war resources. Um, So he was sort of a hero from from the failed war effort. and he was really a secular Jew. He considered himself German first and Jewish last. Um, but the, the reason he was selected for assassination was that two months before he was killed, he negotiated the Treaty of Rapallo with the Soviet Union. The Treaty of Rapallo was one that, that was seeking to normalize relations between Germany and Russia. The, um, right wing uh, was furious at, at this because this was making a treaty with the Bolsheviks, with the communists. Um, and so he was marked for assassination. Now, you have to also keep in mind that at this, during this period of time between 1919, so right after the end of World War I, until 1922, there was this organization, this murder organization called Organization C or Organization Consul. Um, and they assassinated 350 political um, uh, leaders and targets of the, uh, of the right wing. So these were mostly uh, either left wing or social Democrats or 
um, people who in one way or another were, um, uh, you know, they were intellectuals, they were communists, they were uh, um, everybody who was from the center to the left, uh, to the left of center. Um, the, um, so there, there was this conspiracy of murder and assassinations that was occurring during, uh, during this time. And it was all founded on the, the premise that, um, that the Weimar Republic had to be destroyed. It had to be undermined to the point where, it, where the Kaiser would come back and they would reinstitute the, the monarchy. Um, it was a, a time when the, um, when, the military officers from from the war uh, gathered together and were plotting. Uh, it was a time when the wealthy landowners, the so-called Junker class of, in Germany, uh, were were furious at the Weimar Republic um, for their loss of income. Um, and it was a time when when the industrialists were uh, were gathering to it, people who were in in armaments and in construction and bankers, um, and uh, who coalesced around this um, conspiratorial group that was attempting to uh, to destroy the Weimar democracy. Mm -hmm. Weimar was was seen as a as a left or left of center um, uh, government um, and it was just an it was an abomination to these right-wing groups. Now you wrote this book uh, before the court of heaven as you mentioned, it began with a sermon in 1992, um, and the book came out in 2016. So all of this is prior to the election of Donald Trump, who spoke admiringly of Nazis and white nationalists. Did you sense something in the wind, some current of authoritarianism in American life that led you to want to recount this era that you write about? No, not initially. Um, the, my, uh, my reasons for writing this and pursuing this was that uh, what comes from my personal history, I'm a, uh, I was born after the war, but my parents, um, I'm a German Jew. My parents had narrowly escaped the Holocaust. They just barely got, I mean, my, Grand, my paternal grandparents got out of Germany in 1939 already when it was really difficult to get out. Um, so um, others in my family perished in the Holocaust. Um, so, I, and I grew up in New York City in Washington Heights section, which is where a lot of the German Jewish survivors settled after the war. And, um, and I didn't speak English until I was five years old because this was a, like a little urban shtetl of, uh, of the Jewish survivors of the war. Um, the, um, and what I, what I found was that there, in growing up in this environment, that there was this sort of, this, this sort of hushed adult conversation about the Holocaust that we children were not privy to. Um, there was this, um, this, this furtiveness, this sense of, um, uh, of secrecy and, and, uh, and of shame and denial about the Holocaust that, that I grew up with. It was the elephant in the living room. It was, um, it, it was present, but it was shrouded. Um, so I, I sort of grew up with the Holocaust as a, um, a, as a, a living presence in my, um, in my growing up in, in my life. And 
I always felt that that I had that there was some way that I had to respond, and I had some mission to respond to the to the to the Holocaust, and um, and I found the way to do that by writing this book and my other book, um, uh, Life in a Jar: The Arena Sendler Project, which is about the Warsaw Ghetto. Um, the um, I was inspired by something that Elie Wiesel said, the Holocaust scholar Elie Wiesel, who said that he who listens to a witness becomes a witness. And I felt that as I was doing this research into these projects that, um, that I was then able to be a witness um, for uh, about the Holocaust. So I had no inkling that we were about to enter this, uh, this troublesome uh, age of uh, of Trump and QAnon and right wing conspiracies and, um, and so when do you, the, do you see your book now as a cautionary tale for our current uh, time? Absolutely, and it's it becomes more more frightening as time as time goes by. Um, it is um, the the parallels between what happened during that this Weimar period when are um, are a a chilling example of how easily a democracy can fail and how fragile a democracy uh, really is. Um, it never occurred to me that these things could happen in such a sustained way in the United States. Um, that being said, I have always been a social activist in my life I, for in terms of civil rights, the anti-Vietnam War, I was for Physicians for Social Responsibility with the anti-nuclear movement. So it, it has always been part of my calling to integrate my social responsibility and public health. Um, but as- I think it would be helpful in the spirit of the cautionary tale to just explain what ended this brief experiment in democracy in Germany it wasn't set out to be an experiment. It was a democratic government. It lasted for 14 years. How did this democratic government give way to Nazis? The short answer is the Reichstag fire. Okay, there was, Hitler became chancellor in 1933. Um, he, he came to power legally. It was all a, um, uh, an effort by the various right-wing parties to coalesce around somebody who could hold together the fractious uh, parties that were were um, were vying for power. Um, th there were about thirty political parties in the in the Reichstag in in the parliament um, in the German parliament, uh, and they there was. Th you know, it was polarization like we see today, except with multiple parties. So all of these parties settled on Hitler as a as a sort of a convenient uh, uh, person who could represent all of these these parties. So Hitler comes to power in January of 1933. A month later, somebody burns down the Reichstag, the parliament, the, Reichstag, the parliament of Germany. Um, to this day, we don't know who did it. Um, at the time, people thought that it was this lone Dutch anarchist, um, Benjamin Hett, uh, who is a, a, a history professor at, at, um, uh, in, in New York, who has written a couple of, he's written a book about the, the death of democracy also, but he also wrote about, he wrote a book called Burning the Reichstag, 
which um, through his research, he says, it's really looks quite possible that the Nazis themselves set the fire to the Reichstag. Um, this became a, 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 a fortunate emergency for the, for the Nazis because the, when the Reichstag burned, Hitler right away proclaimed that this was the work of terrorists, it was the work of communists, it was um, uh, it, this, and, and he invoked um, what's called Article 48 from the, Const the Weimar Constitution, which um, gave uh, draconian powers to the, the executive to uh, basically act without the consent of the Reichstag and to impose laws that, um, that violated the constitution for four years. So the, um, the, this Reichstag fire decree and then followed shortly by the Enabling Act, which gave Hitler basically carte blanche to, uh, to rule in whatever way he, he, he saw fit. Um, these, uh, that was the proximate cause um, and it all it all happened very quickly. I mean, and, and it's a measure of how how quickly a democracy becomes a dictatorship. You've um, you quote uh, the German journalist and New York Times columnist Jochen Bittner, uh, who described four conditions that cleared the path for the fall of the Weimar democracy, and you itemize them. Uh, one was the loss of trust in institutions. Two was social humiliation, three political blunder, and four economic distress. Um, do you see those elements in play today in 2021 in the United States? I I, I do, and I think there uh, they are uh, stresses that. Um, that it, in some sense may not be that unusual for a complex democracy to harbor, um, but that once you get that, the, the level of sort of cultural conflict that occurs as a result of the political and the social and the economic um, uh, distress um, that, that can occur. And that all, all occurred at once in Weimar during this period of time. Um, that that then sets the stage for conspiracy theories that are are outlandish. And during uh, during Weimar, the sort of the, the two central conspiracy theories were the uh, one was the Protocol of the Elders of Zion, which is this document. It's a forged, made-up document from Russia in the at the turn of the of the century. Um, that describes this cabal of Jewish bankers who are uh, vying to take over the world. It's a, it, it's a, um, it, it, it's a very incredibly dense anti-Semitic document um, that people believed all over the world. It had no basis in fact. It was a forgery. It was, um, it, it was debunked by scholars and by anybody who looked into it. But Henry Ford believed it. Henry Ford printed a half a million copies of the Protocol of Elders of Zion to distribute to, to people in the United States. Um, so that, that was one. The other was the stab in the back myth that the, that, at the, that the Germany's loss of World War I was caused by, a, by not by a loss on the battlefield, that the, the German army didn't lose the war, the German army was betrayed, 
by um, by the so-called November criminals at home. And these are the are, are Jews and it's intellectuals and it's communists and it's um, it, um, it, it's it's the other it's the the um, uh, the Im immigrants. So all of the people that um, that get get blamed and are typically scapegoated and particularly Jews um, were the were the cause of the loss of the war. So there's this sort of enduring um, uh, sort of cultural grievance that is imposed upon um, uh, upon people with this myth of the stab in the back. But it's very powerful and Hitler uses it all the time. And when he's giving his, when he's ranting and giving his speeches, he calls both, he calls on both the protocol of the elders of Zion and the, um, uh, um, and, and as, as sort of the key and the stab in the back as the, the key um, elements of who of the people who are betraying Germany and who must be uh, removed and eliminated. I, I often think in the, uh, you know, in the history of the Holocaust and of the Nazism, um, the, the survivors fall into two camps. Uh, those who left uh, saw something coming and left uh, which, as you note, was difficult to do by the late 30s. And those who rationalized what was going on and stayed and ended up in the death camps. Why did your family leave? How did they have that prescience? Let me start by telling you a story that my mother told me. Um, uh, when when Hitler came to power in 1933, my mother was a 16-year-old Jewish girl in Mainz. Um, and she, what she told me was that um, when the Nazis came to power, there had been so many governments before that, so many chancellors, so many parties had, had, that had, had, had been in power and then had fallen. She said, oh, the Nazis, just another political party. They won't last six months. The, the assumption was when Hitler came to power that this was just another dysfunctional um, political party that would not, that could not survive. Um, so there was a sense that if the Jews just held on and just, you know, um, that, that they would weather, they would weather this. Uh, quickly became apparent that that's not what was happening. And then when the Nuremberg race laws passed in 1935 and then the civil service was closed and my mother was thrown out of high school. And uh, uh, then they, they began to look for ways to, to leave. My mother's brother already lived in um, New York. So she was able to get an affidavit for, to, and, a, and a visa to, to travel, to come to the United States. Um, my, my, parent, my, uh, my father had a brother also who lived in the United States. So, and and my, my father actually went to Palestine first in 1936 and then came to the United States. But my father's parents, my Grandfather on that side was arrested on Kristallnacht. Um, that was November 9th, 1938. The night um, of broken glass. When night of broken glass, and he was uh, he was taken to Dachau. So he was in he was in Dachau for six months. And this was the night when Nazis rampaged and smashed. 
the windows of Jewish-owned businesses, of synagogues, and that was the broken glass. Broken glass and burned, burned cigarette, burned uh, synagogues, and um, and people were killed, um, and mostly people were arrested and were taken to uh, to concentration to concentration camps. Um, the only way my grandfather got out of Dachau was that my grandmother had had gone to high school with one of the administrative guards at Dachau and he accepted a bribe from her. And so he was able to, to get out in that, in that, in that uh, way. That, that's a story I don't think I've ever heard somebody getting out of Dachau. He, well, and, and it, and it was, um, this was a, a story that I only heard when, it, when I was in my 20s. I, this was a secret in my family. And I came home one night, I was in medical school. I came home to dinner one night. And my grandmother was, was with us at the table. And she suddenly bur- blurts out this story about my grandfather in Dachau. And the, the grownups knew about this, but they hadn't told any of, any of our generation of kids. So it was one of those Holocaust secrets. Well, I, I want to ask about another secret in your family. Um, In 1999, uh, as part of Steven Spielberg's Shoah project, your mother brought out her ID papers marked Jew and her nursing certificate stamped with a swastika. You and your brother had never seen this before. Uh, This was just 20 odd years ago. What does this tell you that she would have never shown this to you? It's... It's a very interesting and important question because it really gets to the heart of the um, of this post-traumatic stress disorder that all of the victims and survivors of uh, of the Holocaust um, suffered. Um, I, I think, in my from my mother's uh, point of view, there was a, a feeling of shame about having been um, been singled out as um, uh, for. Uh, for removal from her community. Um, she, one of the things she told me when we went together to Mainz to, to, uh, on a visit to, to look at her, the places where she grew up, she was a great swimmer. She was a professional, uh, you know, a, a, a competitive swimmer and she was thrown off the swim team. Um, so there, it's, there was this, there was a, a deep sense of, of sadness, shame, and and that some somehow this thought that this that our generation should not be burdened with this um, uh, with this history, um, and there you know there was not much conversation about the Holocaust until I was older, um, and until I saw this Spielberg. Um, project and and my parent and my mother revealed these these artifacts that my brother and I had never had never seen. What do you think from your experience and your family's experience seeing the rise and fall of democracy in Germany? And I think you know one of the key points that can never be emphasized enough. You know, in all the violence of the World War II, people forget that Hitler that Nazis were elected. Hitler did not come to power in a violent coup. Uh, he was used the tools of a democratic society to have himself his, and his party take over. What do you think Americans should take away from the stories that you tell uh, of Weimar Germany um, in terms of how they're reacting to what is going on in our country right now? 
Yeah. So the, the comparisons, the analogy with Weimar and what's happening now is imperfect, but compelling. Um, and I think, I, and I, and I want to really make that point very clear that I am not saying we are, that this is Weimar Germany, because it's not. And our democracy is not like the German democracy. We have a 245 year old democracy. Germany had a 14 year democracy and they really were not, didn't know how to, how to keep it. Um, so the, um, the, um, I think for us as to, to look at the comparisons um, is that history doesn't really so much repeat itself as it mutates and it's cyclical. So we often are um, suffering from the fact that we don't recognize when history returns. So it's like what George Santayana said, those who, who cannot remember the past are condemned to repeat it. But the problem is it doesn't come back in a, necessarily in a recognizable way. So we, um, I, I think in this particularly fraught moment that we're at now, um, I think it's useful to look at the, at the comparisons, um, at the analogies between what's happening in our, our country and what happened in Weimar, Germany, and look for, the, look for those common points where, uh, where we may be in, in that same danger. So one of them is about, uh, is about our relationship with the truth and with, with the press and with news and, um, and the, this notion of, of false facts and of alternative facts. Um, the, you know, one of the first things that Joseph Goebbels did as propaganda minister was to um, make sure that every household in Germany had a cheap radio that could only pick up Nazi propaganda so that he right away had, had this audience of people to feed this propaganda to. Um, there were the, the conspiracy theories of the stab in the back, the protocol of the elders of Zion. Um, the, uh, Hitler start, is talking from the very beginning in Mein Kampf. He's talking about the, the usefulness of, of repeating the big lie over and over and over until people believe it. And, um, and he's very, he, he's very good as, a, as an order. Um, so we have these conspiracy theories. We have a vulnerable population who become scapegoated um, as the other, as, as, as immigrants, as people who are somehow hurting the, 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 the homeland. Um, and, and importantly, and, you have a, a, a form of media in that era, radio now, yeah. We have right-wing media, Fox, One America News, et cetera, to be a megaphone for the propaganda of the right. Exactly. And, and it, it's, it's interesting. I mean, the, the, the radio was the Twitter of the 1930s, and it was used very successfully by Goebbels and by Hitler. The, um, we, um, we, all, we also have, um, you know, you think of the press and how, you know, Hitler demonized the press and... Uh, Trump didn't have to demonize the press. All he had to do was create his own press and which he did very successfully in creating this Fox empire and Rupert Murdoch's empire and, and now all the new, the new variations on it, um, on a theme. So, I, it, you know, in some sense, he could leave the, 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 the traditional media alone and, and just 
create a, a sense that this was false news and that these were liars and that, that, um, that they were in the pocket of the left wing and the communists and the socialists. Um, and, and then create his own propaganda machinery that was, uh, was savagely effective. Um, but the other thing is that there was a population that was, that was eager to listen to this message. And interestingly enough, and here's, here's a parallel that again, and I don't wanna to make too much of it, but I think it's, it's interesting and important is that most of the people who were um, initially listening and inspired by Hitler's message and by the Nazi message were, were people were rural, um, uh, people who did not have much education, who did not live in the cities, who, uh, who were largely Protestants. So there was a culture of people who bought into the, um, the, the Nazi uh, propaganda. One of the things I tried to do in my book, and now this is historical fiction, but um, I, I, I specifically chose as a point of view for my character, a fixed point of view. So we are seeing the whole world through this young man's eyes, through Ernst Werner Teshoff's eyes. Um, I wanted to, to try to understand and get into his head to understand how does a person with, these, with, with this ideology, how does he come to it? How does he, how, how does he rationalize that? He was a, a young man who came from a good family. His father was a magistrate. Um, the, and through his eyes and through his experiences to try to understand how his family made accommodations with the Nazis, how his co-conspirators did, um, how his, his neighbors, his community, how, how did that change? His brother, and this is all true, his, Ernst's brother was a socialist. And he then became, he, he then became accommodated to the Nazis by the time the, the 30s, the, the late 30s rolled around and, and became a supporter of Hitler. So I wanted to understand how that happened. All right. Well, um, Dr. Jack Mayer, we're going to have to leave it there. Um, I want to thank you for joining us. Thank you, David. I appreciate the opportunity to talk about this. Dr. Jack Mayer is a recently retired physician, uh, was a pediatrician in Middlebury. His uh, latest books are Before the Court of Heaven and prior to that, Life in a Jar, the Irena Sendler Project. That does it for this week's Vermont Conversation. You can hear this and all programs at vtdigger.org slash vermontconversation. I'm David Goodman. Thanks so much for listening.